Listen, church, today's mercies are for today's troubles. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. You're listening to Trust, a series preached through the book of Habakkuk. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Habakkuk chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're a church that teaches through the scriptures verse by verse. We find ourselves in this incredible book. It's been an awesome study so far. This is our fourth week in the study. Next week we'll conclude it uh, with a family service and a, a little abbreviated time of teaching. It'll still be an awesome time and we'll be covering the last two or three verses in Habakkuk's prophecy. So uh, we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 3. And if you would look at just verse 1 with me, we're just going to read verse 1 together and then we'll pray. Habakkuk 3.1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here with your people. Would you now speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word to us. We thank you we're not the only expression of the church here in Bradenton. We think of our friend Pastor Dan Sardinas and Northwest Bradenton Baptist. Would you bless their fellowship, their gathering together today. And Lord, allow the church in this community, the broader body of Christ, to be a healthy church. Lord, we ask today to equip us and to allow us to leave not just the same, but Lord, transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we uh, commit this time to you and all in agreement said, amen. Now, what song would best describe your life right now? What song title out of these choices would best describe your life? Now, here's a couple different choices. Maybe we are never, ever getting back together by Taylor Swift. Maybe that describes someone here today. Don't raise your hand. Uh, maybe you're more like stressed out by 21 Pilots. Just life right now is stressful. It's a little overwhelming. Maybe on the flip side, uh, Pharrell Williams has a song called Happy. Anybody feeling happy today? That's kind of where you're at. And then, of course, um, don't forget about the Beatles who said help. Maybe that's you here today. You just need somebody to help. Well, songs seem to have the power, and we just sang many together. They have the power to, to poetically capture and express what we're experiencing internally in a more meaningful way than just speaking a sentence out loud. Right? That's one of the reasons that we place such a high priority in the song choices here at Shoreline. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a real intentionality behind the song choices that Pastor Micah and the worship team work on and kind of um, practice and rehearse and then lead us in. Uh, the lyrics of the songs matter. Why? Because the songs we sing should honestly express the gospel. They should honestly express our gratitude, our thanksgiving, our adoration, and even our earnest plea as we come before a holy God as sinful people. We should have songs that are, are true to scripture. We should have songs that are true to kind of the inward turmoil that we're going through and yet the glorious grace of his kindness. And we should use these songs to cry out to a compassionate God who does hear us. Um, this summer in July, 
Uh, we're going to start a um, series through the book of Psalms. We're not going to do every psalm, but we're going to do seven essential psalms, and the series is called Doxology. I'm very excited about that. It's coming up in July. But see, you're not going to be singing the lyrics of my teaching this week. You're gonna be sing- you will be singing, possibly, the lyrics of the songs that we sang together. So how we sing and what we sing is very important. And songs seem to capture rightly our expression to God in a poetic way that allows us to creatively bring him glory. These are not just ho-hum, mundane words that we're just reciting. Maybe that's what it is for you, but these should be words that capture what's going on on the inside. And often songs are prayers. I remember Mike and I were at a worship leaders conference where Paul Balash, we sang some of his songs this morning already, He got up and he said, listen, I want to implore you worship leaders to sing the scriptures, to take scripture and sing it, and then to take the worship lyrics of your songs and to pray them. If we were to do that with the lyrics that we sang today, here's what that prayer would look like. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is a prayer we would have prayed today. We would pray this, Lord, come have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. When we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. You're worthy of all our praises. Lord, give us strength to live for you. Nothing has the power to save but your name. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death and life is mine to live. One through your selfless love, this is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame and he bore the wrath and we stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. That's a prayer that we just sang a moment ago. But what do we do when we're burdened beyond belief? In other words, what do we do when life seems to steal the song out of our lips? I've actually found that sometimes the tragedy of life, the the tragic repercussions of the fall of man can leave me, can leave us without a song. It's almost as if the pain of life robs us of this internal melody and we find ourselves with nothing to sing, with nothing to say. And in those moments, a different sort of song emerges. It's not the chipper, upbeat lyric that a lot of us sing, but more of a lament. Does that make sense? It's, it's less of a song of delight and it's more of a dirge. It's kind of like a funeral march. You picture it being played in a minor key, and Adele is singing it, and and you're just crying, you're doing an ugly cry along to the lyrics. Uh, Spurgeon called these songs in the night, songs that are burdened out of a desperate, emotive, raw, honest heart. And listen, if you can't pray or sing in that kind of a way, then the chances are you may not actually know Jesus. If you're not able to come before him and lay bare your soul and say, Lord, this is who I am, this is who you are, and I give my life to you and I need you, Lord, I'm desperate for you, uh, then maybe you're missing uh, what it means to be fully surrendered. And see, that's the kind of prayer we're about to read together in the third chapter of Habakkuk. This morning, we're going to see the response of the prophet to God's description of the judgment pronounced against Babylon that we studied last week. And we've seen throughout this book kind of this back and forth, this, this question and response, and then God answers, and then Habakkuk responds. And yet, this time, Habakkuk responds with a song, or more accurately, a prayer set to music that he sings back to God. And we've seen that his name, Habakkuk, 
means to wrestle, to wrestle with God. And like many of us, when we face these confusing questions in life, uh, we, like Habakkuk, can move from worry to worship. We can move from confusion to carols. We can move from perplexity to praise. And so we'll be studying this special song today and next week, the last few verses next week, uh, and we'll conclude this amazing book together. So here's how we're going to break down verses 1 through 16. That's what we're going to read together. We didn't do a scripture reading prior because there's a big section we're going to read together. And what we're going to see, if you look at Habakkuk 3 with me, just visibly real quick, you'll see kind of right justified in your Bibles. On the right side is one word ostensibly three times in the text. Uh, and it's there, almost hidden, uh, in this prayer. And the three words are selah. Okay, selah. And that word selah, I want you to circle it, those three times it's mentioned there. These words, this word means a, a pause. It's almost a literary term or a musical break. And the idea is that as you're singing, you should just kind of stop and consider what you just said. Consider the words that you just sang and kind of reflect on them for a minute. Uh, Almost like the end of a verse before a chorus. And so by using these natural breaks in this chapter, that's how we're gonna break up our uh, outline today. So on the screen, you can take a picture of this. This is what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at verses one through three and see what is the shiganoth of the prophet. There's a word you didn't expect to say today, shiganoth, all right? Uh, Verses one through three. Verses four through nine A, we're gonna look at the splendor of the Lord. And then the salvation of the Lord in verses 9b through 13. And then verses 14 through 16, we'll see the response is rightly stillness before God's judgment. Okay? So that's where we're going today. Look at verse 1 again with me. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenoth. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. So let's focus on that first verse, verse 1, and that word, Shiganoth. Okay, I want you to go ahead and highlight that or underline that, circle that, um, make it known on the page. And then also, take your Bibles, and if, you, if it's on another page, turn the page to the very end of Habakkuk 3. At the end of verse 19, you'll see a little phrase that says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Circle that as well. Okay? Uh, that's important. The word shiganoth is mentioned here, but it's also mentioned in Psalm 7. And most commentators think that this word is not just a musical term, but a specific type of song. Okay? So it carries with it, um, the suggestion is that it carries with it this idea of strong emotion or erratic wandering or wild tumult. Some people even think that that's the type of song that's being sung, that it's just this wildly paced song that's back and forth and it's musically just really rapid. And we're not sure about that, but there's definitely a lot of passion that's coming through in both Psalm 7 and in Habakkuk 3. If we compared the two, They're actually very similar, very interesting. Both of these songs paint a picture of dire trouble. In Habakkuk 3 right here, um, we see calamity. There's going to be earthquakes. There's there's mountains crumbling. There's pestilence. There's floods, arrows, and trouble. And then Psalm 7 depicts an enemy that comes against the psalmist like a, a dangerous lion. And this enemy has weapons and swords and arrows to violently destroy the righteous. Both of these shiganoths, Um, end with praise to the Lord for his deliverance. 
On, on, in Psalm, here's what it says, Psalm 7 at the end says, his mischief, his enemy's mischief, returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. And then he says, but I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. In other words, there's judgment coming for my enemy, but I'm just going to glory in who God is. Well, that's how Habakkuk ends. Look at how Habakkuk ends. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, at the end of chapter 3, the inclusion of this little phrase to the choir master with stringed instruments, it, it makes many people believe that maybe Habakkuk himself was a Levite. In other words, maybe he was in the temple leading the music. He was part of the, um, the group of Levites who led the worship in the temple. We don't know that for sure, but either way, this is a song, okay? Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Notice with me in verse 2, he says, O Lord, this is Yahweh. He's addressing God by name. Remember, this is the covenant-keeping, faithful God who's sovereign, holy, and good. Yahweh will not abandon his people. He'll be faithful to his name. And so the prophet literally says, in the, in the Hebrew, literally this reads, verse 2 reads, I have heard of the hearing of you. I've heard that people have heard of you, and I heard what they heard. I, I'm, I'm hearing the report. There's a report that I've actually obtained. And because of what I've heard, I have absolute reverence for your works. I, I'm standing in utter awe of your deeds. God, you are awesome in the right sense of that word. We've cheapened the word awesome. Today we say everything is awesome. We even sing songs about it to the chagrin of most parents. Everything is, yeah, we just say that. We say the pizza place that opened is awesome. No, the idea of the word awesome is that it's full of awe. It's worthy of awe, all right? And only God is truly awesome where he's worthy of awe. Uh, he's worthy of amazement and maybe even fear, yes, fear in a reverential way. So Habakkuk is praying this. He's saying, Wow, I've heard of you, and Lord, here's this prayer. In the midst of my years, revive it. In the midst of yours, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. Now, he's not asking, notice, for God to revive him. A lot of people make that mistake. He's not saying, God, revive me, but God, revive your work. In other words, God, bring about your sovereign, active hand of mercy in the midst of judgment, wrath, and discipline. Lord, revive your work. Bring revival uh, in what you do among your people. Now, some of us hear the word revival and we get a little bit, like, scared. We, we kind of go, ugh. Because in our minds, we have a picture of like, hey, we're going to meet out back in a tent and we're going to have revival from June 3rd to June 10th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. So join us for revival when God does revival. And we scheduled it. Like, God, you have to show up during that time period, but don't stay too late because we have a potluck afterwards, right? That's not revival. That's not, like, that... That might be something scheduled and, and maybe printed on material, but that's not the idea. The idea of revival means simply to preserve or make alive. When we're praying for revival, what are we doing? We're asking God to intervene in the lives of his people and to manifest his mercy and presence. As Christians, what does that mean for us? It means that we're asking for God to revive a return to the simplicity of the gospel in his church. Lord, Allow us to look to Jesus alone. We keep straying. Forgive us, Lord. 
Let us take sin seriously and, and turn from sin to holiness. Help us to love you, Lord. Help us to love our neighbor. Help us to even love our enemy. Lord, bring us back to seeing regenerative work by your Holy Spirit in the lives of the lost in our community. That's revival. It's, it's not kind of this scheduled time. It's seeing God work. In fact, Charles Spurgeon prayed this. He said, Lord, revive thy work. And if thy work happened to be more in one branch of the church than in another, Lord, give that the most reviving. Give us all the blessing, but do let thine own purposes be accomplished and thine own glory come of it. And we shall be well content, though we should be forgotten and unknown. A lot of us say, Lord, bring revival because it means more people at church. No, that's not the idea. And when Habakkuk is praying this, he's saying, Lord, I want to see a specific thing happen in our day. And what is his prayer? His prayer is that in wrath, God would remember mercy. He's praying that this would be experienced and known in the midst of years. Not theoretical, not contemplative, but known and experienced in real time and in real places. He wants God to work in a way that's clearly evident and understood. Now, the obvious question is, do God's people deserve revival? Do they deserve God to revive his work in their day? The answer is no, we don't deserve it. But that's what the reason that he prays, okay, in the midst of this, bring mercy. It's a prayer for mercy. God, remember your mercy. Visit your people with grace and kindness, even as you discipline us. Now, look at verse 3 as he acknowledges that God has not ignored him. Verse 3, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Remember we mentioned Habakkuk is asking three questions that every person has asked. These three questions are imminent uh, in life. The three questions are, does God care? Is God fair? And is God there? He's already mentioned the first two and answered them in chapter 1 and 2 respectively. And here in chapter 3, he answers his own question, is God there, with a resounding yes. God is not afar off. He's descended to visit his people. He's coming to visit his people kind of on the same route uh, as what one commentator says, uh, the old salvation route. Whenever you hear about Timon and Mount Paran, that's kind of the salvation route. That's the way of salvation. And so the attribute emphasized here about God is that he is the holy one. He's here to visit retribution and judgment against sin, against lawlessness, against rebellion. The judge, as it were, is standing at the door. And that alone deserves Selah, a little pause to realize the judge is at the door. When I was a teacher, there used to be this moment where I'd say, hey students, I'm gonna leave for a minute, I'll be back. And I would leave and I would always kind of walk back a little bit slowly, a little bit quietly, come up to the door and I'd kind of, kind of listen in. I'm standing at the door waiting. And I would hear the students, you know, those two or three that are always cutting up, they'd be talking. And then you kind of open the door and oh, everyone, you know, hushes and everyone straightens up. The guy who's standing up with, you know, the balloons, he sits down really quick and everyone's, everyone's normal. But that's kind of the idea. He's standing at the door. He's, he's arriving. And that brings us to our second section, the splendor of the Lord. Look at verse 4, or the end of 3. It says, His splendor covered the heavens, and the praise was full, the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. Now, um, this can be very hard to interpret, and a lot of people have trouble with it. Um, But for a moment, I want us to consider this song from the perspective of the children, the nation of Israel. Okay, the perspective of Israel and her history. Before Israel inhabited the land, the promised land, they were an oppressed people in bondage to Egypt, remember? And yet God, in the midst of their oppression, was still faithful to them and he delivered them. Remember, it was through the judgment of plagues and through the Red Sea, God delivers Israel from Egypt uh, and leads them into the wilderness. And it's there that they start testing the Lord and they incur his judgment. And so then, because of unbelief, what many call the tragedy of Kadesh Barnea, they are not able to enter into the land. And so now they're kind of wandering and waiting in this uh, desert. Uh, But eventually, Moses dies, and Joshua, if you were to be real literal, Yeshua, right, the one whose name means salvation, leads them into uh, this promised land across the Jordan. And so God literally goes before them with his Shekinah glory, with the Ark of the Covenant, the pillar of fire and cloud, and Israel is able to take most of the land promised to them. Uh, And so from Mount Sinai in the past all the way to the future to Mount Zion, God would be faithful to his people, and his splendor would cover the heavens and his praise would fill all the earth. Now, in this section from 3b to 9, many people see four fulfillments in these verses. Not to get too technical, uh, but a lot of people see a picture of looking back at God's faithfulness to Israel in those kind of judgments through Egypt's um, judgment. Uh, But secondly, a lot of people see a picture ahead in the near fulfillment with Babylon, that this is a picture of Babylon as well. Some people see a third fulfillment uh, as affliction experienced by the Messiah who would simultaneously bring salvation as he bears God's wrath. And a fourth fulfillment is seen even further ahead uh, as uh, kind of the second coming and return of Christ. So the idea of Taman, Mount Paran have significant prophetic weight in regards to the second coming, so that's certainly plausible. But either way, in each of these instances, no matter how you interpret it, as the people of God look back and as the people of God look forward, they can see God's glory in and above creation. And they can see his faithfulness in their lives and they can remember or ask God to remember wrath or remember mercy in his wrath, not to remember wrath. Uh, Robertson says this, God's redemptive acts of the past provide the basis for an expectation concerning the future. Now, notice the response of the earth uh, in verse 7. The tents of Kushan, they're in affliction. The curtains of Midian are trembling, and the mountains are scattered, and the hills even sink low. I know we don't have hills or mountains in Florida. We have interstates, but the idea is there. You get the idea. You've seen pictures. Uh, So, in other words, when God is at work, there are noticeable results. Now, verse 9 seems to be the moment right before judgment. God removes his bow, and he starts reaching for his arrows. This is the actual moment. And the lyrics stop here, and the music changes for a little salah, and we are left to consider this moment. Wow, let's take a breath. God and his wrath and justice are about to visit lawlessness. Let me make this really personal for us this morning. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, I want to speak to you for a minute. 
There comes a time in all of our lives where the consequences of our rebellion, the consequences of our lawless treason against God will catch up to us. It may be in eternity where we stand before his judgment seat, or it may be that God in his grace allows you to experience before that time a glimpse of retribution by facing a little bit of judgment here in this life that it would draw you to repentance. There will be a day, there will be an occasion where it's too late to repent and trust Christ. But that day isn't upon you yet. At the great white throne judgment, you will in that moment recall the times that God in his sovereign grace and patience allowed you to hear the gospel message in clear form. And I believe that that flashback or flashbacks will heap added condemnation upon you and your endless list of already um, hopeless transgressions against a holy God. And so I implore you today, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, to repent of your sin, to trust Christ for salvation, that salvation is found in no other name, but only in the name of Jesus, who is the Son of God. He came, he bore your sin in his body on the tree. He died in your place, and yet he rose again triumphantly. Today there is no more excuse. You stand before him exposed. Receive him, repent, turn from your sin, receive Christ. There may be something that Spurgeon called this this small uh, twine. Actually, I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said that we stand, we hang suspended above a lake of fire, and that one little strand is starting to be cut. And what's cutting it? Maybe today it's your fear of man. Maybe today it's the silly theological questions that you you just don't seem to be willing to submit to the scriptures. And that's alone bearing your weight, and that's beginning to cut. And today you must forsake that. Forsake your comfort. Forsake your fear. Forsake your unbelief and turn to Christ for salvation. The judgment awaits. You will not escape it. And this causes the prophet to take a breath and to pause and consider. And that brings us to our third section. You see, I can preach without authority and that kind of confrontation with hope, right? Because there's salvation. The third idea is the salvation of the Lord. Look at the rest of verse 9. He says, You split the earth with rivers, verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. And then verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. Now note with me in this section the supremacy of God over creation. Look at verses 10 and 11. The supremacy of God over creation in things that are trustworthy, so to speak. Things as trustworthy as the earth itself, God is able to split into rivers. Things which delineate geographical borders like waters, he's able to kind of bring onto the land. Uh, Things like mountains which seem permanent, seem prominent, he's able to shake. He's able to move. Things which are seemingly trustworthy and reliable like the sun and the moon in in the sky, they will even submit and stand still before a sovereign God. Not only is God supreme over creation, But verse 12 tells us that he's supreme over the nations. No empire, no kingdom that has or ever will exist can compare in its splendor or might or influence compared to Almighty God. 
Uh, Now notice what's being emphasized here. God is actively at work in his creation. But there's an end in sight in verse 13. Why is he doing this? He's doing it for the salvation of his people. There's a purpose behind his judgment and work. So when he manifests his glory over creation, it's always with the greater intent of bringing salvation. Habakkuk mentions here the salvation of God's people, but more specifically, notice that he goes on to say, for the salvation of your anointed. Would you circle that word, the word anointed? Uh, This is the word Mashiach or Messiah, okay? Often it's used of kings, it's used of David, and of course we know it's used to describe Jesus himself, the Messiah, in passages like Isaiah 9 and 11. But many scholars believe that this reference to the anointed is not necessarily, not necessarily in this context, Jesus, and not necessarily David or kings, but one who would be anointed by God to come and crush Babylon and lay the entire empire bare. Who is that? That anointed one was known as Cyrus the Great. Almost 200 years before Cyrus lived, here's what Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 45, this is kind of abridged. I took all these verses and kind of condensed them. It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, I will go before you that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. He actually calls him Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, interesting, it would be this guy Cyrus, the great Persian ruler, who would eventually topple Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Babylon, the entire empire, and he would be, Cyrus would be the one who would be the means by which Israel was saved or delivered back to the land of of Israel. And Isaiah names him centuries before he was born. In fact, many scholars, if you look at literary criticism, they go, there's no way. So they give two authors to Isaiah. There's original Isaiah, and then there's post-Cyrus Isaiah, because there's no way Isaiah could have predicted his actual name, Cyrus. And I say, you're right. There's no way Isaiah could have done that. But there's absolutely a way if God spoke to and through Isaiah, it's absolutely plausible. One person has noted uh, that over 500 years before Christ was born, God delivered his people from their physical exile and sent them back home through King Cyrus. This person says Cyrus conquered Babylon, becoming lord of the Jewish exile, so to speak. In 538 BC, he decreed that they could go home, Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And amazingly, the Lord took his people back to the promised land through a pagan king's edict, not through David's line. So this anointed one, Cyrus, notice that in verse 13, he'll be the agent of salvation through whom God uses to deliver his people. And God uses him to crush the head of the house of the wicked. And he uses the phrase to lay him bare from thigh to neck. That means to utterly expose, to utterly wipe out. And it's interesting, a lot of times this happens in the scriptures where um, one person is represented, all the people are represented in the head, the one person. Now, track with me for a minute. How cool is this? The wicked is represented by one head, and the head would be crushed by the one who represents righteousness. The one who is defeated would be so thoroughly defeated that he'd be laid bare down to his foundation. And I believe that's a glorious picture of what Christ has done in crushing the head of the serpent and 
laying waste to our great foe, not Satan, but death itself. Jesus has rendered death defeated and defenseless. Jesus brings us spiritual salvation, not just physical deliverance from our foes. So it's a, it's a glorious picture also of the anointed one, Jesus. But listen, God's work of judgment is never just merely to destroy the wicked for the sake of destruction, like God's board. I just want to destroy a nation. You got any suggestions? That's not the idea. But he does it in order to save his people and deliver them from their enemies. And that truth causes Habakkuk to reflect and just to pause, to take a deep breath, to have a selah, and to consider the salvation of the Lord. And that brings us to our final section in this book and in this song. And we're only going to look at verses 14 through 16. You guys read 17, 18, 19 ahead for next week. But look at verse 14. It says, you pierced with his own arrows the the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. What's going on here? See, track with me, church. God is going to take the might of Babylon He's going to take Babylon itself and all of its military might and use its own strength against itself, its own strength against itself as its primary weakness. What if instead of fearing our enemies, God wants us to see our enemies from a unique perspective? In other words, instead of looking at their strengths, we see it from another perspective and say, oh, their inherent strength is actually their unknown weakness. You see, this is a scriptural idea. It's thoroughly biblical. Uh, you look at Haman. In the book of Esther, Esther 7.10 tells us that Haman hung from the very gallows that he constructed for the Jews. Uh, We read about uh, the adversaries of Daniel, and they end up perishing in the exact den of lions that they had thrown him in originally in Daniel 6.25. In fact, on the screen, Proverbs 26.27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. That's not speaking about digging trenches in your backyard. The idea is like we're trying to go against someone. We're devising schemes in our mind. We're working against someone. We're going to devise schemes. And yet the very schemes you're devising for them will revisit you. And so as Babylon was resting behind the safety of her walls, remember we mentioned how large the walls were, that you could actually take a chariot and do, they had chariot races on these walls. That it was the size of modern-day Chicago. It is ironic that Babylon was hiding behind her walls, not in a battle militarily, but through a simple breach in the wall of the city during a party. During that time, the Persian army had diverted the river upstream from the city of Babylon. And because of that, the river that flowed into the city in a very low gate, that river uh, level went down, and the Persian army was able to sneak in and easily destroy the city. Later, when Darius was king, the Babylonians revolted, and they did so unsuccessfully. And as a consequence, they experienced many of the same brutalities they had inflicted upon their own victims, including the Jews. In fact, history records that the Babylonians themselves later, when knowing that their wives and kids were going to starve to death, they strangled their own families, knowing what was awaiting them. Uh, or to avoid being uh, Persian slaves. Uh, After the city was defeated, Herodotus says that the city gates uh, that were their protection were pulled down and 3,000 of the leading citizens were impaled upon the walls of the city. The once great city of Babylon had been defeated by her own pride and her safety. Look at verse 15. 
He goes on and says, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, the appropriate response to God's justice is verse 16, to tremble, to quiver, to have a sense of heaviness and brokenness and just to quietly wait upon the Lord. As the reality of the coming Babylonian invasion sinks in, Habakkuk begins to tremble. This is not theological tremble. Like I, I trembled in my spirit. He's physically shaken. If that's ever happened to you, if you've been in a situation where maybe someone threatened you physically and you just, you began to physically show signs of this traumatic response. There's an absolute horror that overtakes you and your body just almost without meaning to um, begins to convulse. And that's what's happening here. But notice what the prophet's quietly going to wait for. He's going to wait for verse, the end of verse 16, for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade. In other words, He knows Babylon itself is going to be judged for what she does to Israel. God may allow this to happen, but that doesn't escape the complicit guilt that this city, this nation, will have against his people. Now, we're going to stop there today. Next week on Father's Day, we'll conclude the book of Habakkuk and see what the prophet's final thoughts are, this beautiful um, picture of trust, of faith, and how we can trust God even when everything around us is falling apart. But let's apply this passage of Scripture today in a very special way. I believe that in this passage of Scripture, he's worshiping and he's praying. And I believe that worshiping God, waiting on God, should always include four things. And we find them in this chapter. So I want you to jot these down, or we'll put them up all on the screen together so you can take a quick picture of this. I believe prayer and praise should always include these four things. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past requesting God to be merciful to us, reflecting on the salvation afforded to us, and resting and waiting for his work to be accomplished. So let's work through each one of those for a minute. First of all, remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Habakkuk actually looks back to get bearings on where he can expect God to work today and in the future. When we worship God, or we wait upon him in prayer, guys, we need to recount the ways that he's been faithful to us. I think of the psalmist, Psalm 103, who said, bless the Lord. He's almost talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's not saying, hey guys, bless the Lord. He's looking internally. Hey, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he tells us a few. He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You and I, I'll just speak about me. I so easily forget the faithfulness of God. Am I the only one? I so easily forget the faithfulness of God. I might be the only one here who struggles with spiritual dementia. You know what I mean by that? Where I just, I forget. It's like, God's like, really? I have to revisit this again? Hi, I'm God. I'm your father. Just got to revisit this with you. You forgot this again. I'm like, you've never acted this way, Lord. What are you doing? And he's like, I've acted this way a lot, and I've proven myself over and over again, but let me reintroduce myself, and I just forget. Lord, I didn't know uh, that you would 
do this. I go into a situation and I start fretting because I forget time and time again, God has been faithful. He's not going to abandon me. He's going to be true to his name. And so listen, worship and prayer should have an element of recalling the times that God has come through in the 11th hour. Uh, So our faith isn't shaken. So when we're singing songs, when we're praying, we should reflect back. We should thank him. Secondly, prayer and praise should always include requesting God to be merciful to us. Habakkuk, ask God, remember mercy in the midst of your wrath. Listen, it's not that God has forgotten about his mercy, but it's a special request to give us grace and kindness as we're being corrected. Now, I don't know what your daily prayer life looks like, but my, my prayer life on the daily looks a lot more like a desperate plea for mercy than just a laundry list of requests. Right? It's not like I roll it out. All right, Lord, I have a list today. Here's your to-do list. Thank you, Lord. It's more of a God, have mercy on me. I need you today in this situation. Corey Tim Boone said, any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. <laughs> I like that. You see, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, sufficient is the day, or for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. In other words, don't worry today about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to have its own set of worries that you're going to have to deal with tomorrow. So hopefully that doesn't make you anxious today to face a whole bunch of worries tomorrow, but just deal with today because there's enough worries for today, right? But see, there's hope because with each new morning, there's new mercies. Lamentations 3, 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Remember that old song? They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen, church, today's mercies are for today's troubles. Tomorrow, there's going to be a whole new (laughs) set of concerns. So why not plead for mercy as you seek our gracious and faithful God today? There's new mercies for today. So request God to be merciful. Thirdly, when we think about worship, when we think about prayer, we should always be reflecting on the salvation afforded to us. In the case of Habakkuk and Israel, it would be through Cyrus and Persia that their eventual deliverance would physically come. But we're in a different time. And as participants in the new covenant, you and I are not glorying in physical deliverance from our enemies. But the spiritual victory that we have is being more than conquerors through Christ. This week I was jogging and uh, I, I was just running along and I was gripped in the middle of my run by the fact that I'm saved. Has that ever happened to you? Have you just been gripped in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of just some random thing, maybe during worship? You just realize, dude, I'm saved. And I'm running and all of a sudden, I mean, I'm sweating, but all of a sudden I'm starting, okay, I can share this because next week's Father's Day and we're men. I started crying, guys. I'm like weeping and crying out to God as I'm running. Uh, You know, people are looking at me like, man, that guy is really running hard. He's weeping. (laughs) He's dying. Call somebody. I'm just, I'm just overcome. I'm just I'm like, Lord, I'm saved. I'm born again by the Spirit of God. Lord, I'm going to be with you in eternity. I'm not going to face the judgment of God, but the joy of my master. There's a seat at the table. And I was a part of the family at enmity with the king, and yet he sought me out and showed his kindness, and he scooped me up. I was disabled, and he carried me to the table, and he brought me to a feast with the king. I am unworthy, Lord. Why did you do that? Thank you for saving me. It was a little bit shorter than that, but, but that's what I was just weeping and, and crying out. No one can snatch me out of his hand. 
How often do we fail to give God glory and thanksgiving for what we have? Church, you should glory in that and just reflect, I'm saved. And if that doesn't get you excited, we're 2-0. and That'll get you excited <clears throat> as, a, as a team. Now, finally, when we pray and worship, we should rest and wait for his work to be accomplished. To me, church, that's where the rubber meets the road. Habakkuk could have rejected God's words and gone the way so many of us have gone. So many of us go the way of wanting to scoop the situation into our seemingly capable hands. And we say, well, something's got to get done, so I'm going to get it done. How many times have you been in that situation where you don't leave room for God's wrath? You don't leave room for God to work. You go, no, I'm going to get this done. Nothing's happening, so let me do something. Rather than submitting it to him and trusting him for the results. You see, listen, faith is not irresponsibility. Trust is not being passive or bypassing responsibility. On the contrary, it's actually much more irresponsible, much more irresponsible for me to try to accomplish in my strength what only God can accomplish in his power. And that's worse than irresponsible. We call that a symptom of unbelief. Could it be that we are technically Christians, but functionally we're unbelievers? Let me, let me repeat it. Could it be that by not turning to God, not trusting God, and resting and waiting upon him, we're technically Christians, but by our actions, we're functional unbelievers? See, trusting God is being able, like Habakkuk, to sing even when life seems to steal our voice. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close in a song, a hymn that's familiar, and it's quite fitting uh, for this message. But as we close, go ahead and close your Bibles. We're going to transition to uh, just a time of considering this, our own Selah, as it were. Today's the 9th of June. On the 25th of June, 1865, a man by the name of James was 33 years old, and he was having a great crisis in his life. He was sitting at the Brighton Beach coast on the southern coast of England. And it was a Sunday morning, and he was there, and he was contemplating a huge step of faith. But as he began to pray, he realized there was a simple spiritual principle that he knew, but he never really understood. And here's the spiritual principle on the screen. It's almost like he never understood this, but he realized in this moment, hey, if we're obeying the Lord, then the responsibility rests with him and not with us. Months of struggle were over, and the way ahead was clear. He realized if, he realized if I obey the scriptures and trust God to be faithful to his word, that's not being rash. In fact, trying to be cautious and follow tradition and man's wisdom, that's the foolish route. And so throwing tradition and caution to the wind, this man James, known as James Hudson Taylor, formed in that moment what we know as the China Inland Mission. And he laid the foundation for a great work of God in that great nation. Church, this morning, we stand at that moment where we say, listen, I'm not going to take this in my own hands anymore. I'm going to fully rely on the Lord. I'm going to trust him with this trial. I'm going to trust him with this diagnosis. I'm going to trust him with this unclear future. I don't understand why I'm in this. I don't understand how I'm going to get through it. But 
The responsibility rests with him, not with me. And I'm gonna trust him. And I'm gonna give him the glory in the end. My prayer is for us to submit to him this morning, all of our trouble. Father, we pray that you would do that in our lives this morning. You would help us to submit to you. Lord, as we sing this song, remind us of your greatness and your worth. Lord, we know that there is no one like you. And so, Lord, as we glory in the cross and in the finished work of Jesus today, we thank you that we can sing how awesome you are, how great you are. And we can join with the angels and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thank you for the work you've done in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust you and not to take your place of sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Will you stand with me as we sing? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.